normally, last week we were talking about foop and also ways of dealing dealing with uncertainty. Uh, and we got into a conversation about my friend Allegra, who is slightly more typical of the American experience than we are in terms of her responses to being isolated. <laughs> yes, Allegra made a face. <laughs> we invited Allegra. We're going to talk to Allegra as a more representative experience of what it's like to be isolated. And by more typical, we mean less wildly atypical. Right. Because my quarantine activities has consisted of uh, finishing my book that I'm writing and nursing a herniated disc, probably. Yeah. Um, but so just and, and that's it. In terms of our differences in experience, Allegra and I are both college choral directors. We both have doctorate of musical arts in conducting. We're both introverts. <laughs> I have two dogs. She has two cats. So okay. this so, is a this is a baby step towards right. <laughs> typical. We are a bunch of Gen X, Xennial white ladies. Yes, yeah. that's, that's that's what that is, and that's fine. So, would you like to tell the people about yourself? Sure. Um, I'm happy to join this triad of doctors. I'm Dr. Allegra Martin, and that's new enough that I still insist on saying it. You definitely need to do that, yes. 100%. Yeah, no, I will continue. Don't worry. Yeah. And I live in Worcester, Massachusetts. Uh, my job is at the College of the Holy Cross, where I'm the director of college choirs. We are, of course, doing distance learning at the moment. Yeah. I'm single. I think that that'll be really relevant for this conversation. Yes. Um, because I live alone in an apartment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 That'll do it for, for now. The thing that inspired Emily to say we should talk to Allegra was you suggested that you and I and Malin have a, a, like a dinner on Zoom. And I was like, oh, that's a great idea. But apparently that's a thing that people are doing. <laughs> I think so. I mean, I don't think I came up with the concept. I think <laughs> it was just in the ether. And I it's was like, it's definitely you know, a thing. Like, yeah. I'm sure I've read an article about it in the Atlantic. <laughs> and you know, that's who we are. We're yeah. people who read an article about Zoom dinners in the Atlantic. And you're the one who's actually having Zoom dinners. So what, yeah. what inspired you to start doing that? Were you just like, I need to talk to some people? Um, so being an introvert and being somebody who lives alone, I, I tend to approach sort of relationships and friendships as something that require maintenance that I have to put in. And then I know that will be good for my mental health and it will be good for the relationships. And so it's not something that I usually would say, I, I don't consider myself a very spontaneous person. It's not a spontaneous impulse. And I'm also... So I've listened to parts of the podcast. Um, I would say, I was telling Amelia, I think I've listened to over half of it, but I'm a little, always behind and a little sporadic. So I would say that I'm not always good about reading my own emotional state, but I also don't really necessarily respond. Like that's not something that I often consider an impetus. I just will be like, well, it's the right thing to do. So we're going to do it. Um, so I'll reach out to friends even when we're not under lockdown and I will, you know, schedule things because I know I will want to see them but it feels more like a principle than a sort of spontaneous choice. So just on principle, I know I want to keep up, you know, my relationships with people and have some social time. And so. Oh. Like exercise. It's exactly. It's not that you like feel in your body that you would like to go for a run. Exactly. It's that it's scheduled, you know, it's good for you. And so you're going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not that I necessarily, I also know that I will enjoy doing it. But yeah. I don't ever spontaneously feel like doing anything except lying on the couch with a cat on top of me. So therefore I just do it. Yeah. Although you do practice Taekwondo, are you still going to No, of course you can't go now because it's isolation. Oh no, actually I'm doing more Taekwondo. Really? Uh, yes. So my current school in Worcester is doing online Zoom classes. So I'm going to those twice a week. And then my actually several former schools are doing Zoom classes, but I think that one of them wants you to pay. So, however, <laughs> my Illinois club is doing um, Zoom classes and now I can just attend them. And the Illinois teacher um, is really sort of uh, very, very deliberate 
about how she puts together a class and thoughtful and um, I really enjoyed working with her in person and I am really happy to have the opportunity to to work out with them again and they're very different styles of classes so the Worcester class is very much working on all the I would say repertoire if that makes sense there's many different types of forms and patterns that we learn through and then the Illinois school is more focused on workouts anyways all to say um, I'm doing taekwondo four times a week in my living room wow it is however kind of frustrating because I don't have the right kind of floor yeah and I think if I were you know not a heavy middle-aged woman maybe I wouldn't care about that kind of thing you've downstairs neighbors but I do I don't, I don't care about them <laughs> <laughs> but it's a hardwood floor rug, and yeah. no, I mean, I jump and, you know, they, they're doing something with a very loud bass a lot of the time. So um, they can live with it, but just pivoting. I have, I have plantar fasciitis. I have, so this means that since it's a hardwood floor, I have to wear my sneakers. Taekwondo is all about pivoting. Uh, sneakers are not the best shoes for pivoting, but I can't wear different shoes because they. Can I make a recommendation? Support. When I've done, when I did swing dancing, um, and I had bad knees, I discovered that if I wanted to wear supportive shoes, not like dance shoes, and still be able to pivot, because swing dancing involves a lot of pivoting, especially for the follow, duct tape on the soles of shoes on a wood floor. Duct tape has just enough grip versus slidiness, just right under the ball of the foot. Strip of duct tape. So you're saying sticky side out, right? No, 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 no. That was a joke. That was okay. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no. Idea. So. I'll have to. That's a really good idea. I'll have to try that. That's a Lindy Hop trick. If I go flying across the apartment, <laughs> yeah, you can sue me. That's fine. That's also just like a high school dancer trick. If your jazz shoes or your ballet shoes wear out before the end of a dance year, you just tape them together with duct tape, and you can keep your ballet slippers working all year. Yeah. Duct tape. Similar slidiness to leather, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Just the preferred soul of choice for dancers. You got me thinking. Anyway. Anyway. Just this is a, a podcast about my taekwondo. Experience, that's a niche right? conversation that well, might get trimmed. But you know. <laughs> I think it's important. I think a lot of people will be it's useful to have anyway. So I have a series of questions which we can talk about or not. But I figure a good place to start is, what has changed? Oh, well, Amelia, of course, can also speak to this as a choir conductor. But everything has changed. This semester, I was only directing ensembles. I was not teaching classes. I have a five load, and I do two ensembles. And so I usually teach in the fall, um, which means everything is just different. Like. We can, we can go on a, a, another sort of side conversation about you know, what it means to be a music director in these times, but the result is that my work is to connect people in real time, in real place. When I think about reducing what I do to one word, the word is connection. Yes. So obviously there are ways to connect people nowadays, but I am not an expert in any of them. So, and uh, there is no substitute for the actual no. in a room breathing together, feeling each other's breath, of and training. It, exactly, uh, there is no substitution for that. There is no way to do virtual choir in a way that actually provides the experience of what it's like to be part of that choral organism. Yeah, absolutely not. And. And, you know, I have to actually explain this to other people that I work with and it hasn't occurred to them. And that's frustrating because obviously my experience should be at the center of the universe and everybody else should understand it without <laughs> having to explain it. Well, so Amelia and I both have the experience of being the only person on our campus who does the thing we do. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so therefore part of what we do for our job is explain to people what we do. Is that yes. what's true for you too? Uh, it's not quite fair to say yes, but essentially yes. There are two other choral conductors who are in the chaplain's office, and they run the chapel choirs. So, and I'm quite close friends with one of them, and he certainly understands what I do. And the other one is only on campus one day a week, and I don't really get to see him. There are other people there, but I'm the only one who's located in the music department. So you have students who have to take choir for credit in order to have a degree that's accredited by you know, the national organization that, that accreditates, accredit, 
gives accreditation for music programs. So you, ha you have to offer a choral experience because singers who are getting degrees in voice performance have to sing in a choir in order to get a degree that means anything. Yeah, we, don't, we only have a music major. We don't have specific like- Voice uh, major, okay. Yeah. So you probably have an ensemble requirement. You definitely exactly. have an ensemble requirement. All music exactly. programs have to have an ensemble requirement. And there's really no, solu no social distancing solution. Being six feet apart, when you're singing, it really needs to be 10 or 12 feet apart. You can't, yeah. if, as, in, as teachers of amateur musicians, they can't wear masks. You need yeah. to see their mouths. Yeah. Yeah. Just in, listen uh, enough. Yeah. I'm, I mean, so for one thing, they're all home right now. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so in that way, it's a moot point. Also, even the things that I am trying to do with distance learning, one of them is we did do some virtual choir work because mm -hmm. we have a sound engineer as a part of the music department who's doing all the hard work of it. Um, I mean, I shouldn't downplay my own role. I'm listening to an awful lot of videos, but I mean, he's, he's really making the magic happen. And then we have a weekly meeting where um, we sing duets or rounds together. So they all mute themselves and I teach them one part and then they can sing that part while I sing the other part. So I have no idea how they're doing or whether they're doing it correctly, but at least they're opening their mouths and singing. But I get maybe like five to 10% of my students are participating in that. Ugh. Because we're all at home, right? They're family yeah. around. There's nowhere to be quiet. And yeah. I remember how self-conscious I was at their age. I would, yeah. I, I probably, I guess, would have participated, but I probably would have hidden the basement. Like yeah. we had a house. I don't know. So I don't, I can't really blame my students at all for not wanting to be vulnerable in front of people. And the whole reason you join a choir is you don't want to sing alone. Yes. And now by definition, the only option available to them is singing alone. Yes. Right. The whole point of a choir is you have a space and a group of people who are safe to make these mistakes in front of. One of the main things I think I provide to my students is opportunities to make mistakes and practice fucking up and continuing. And, but also uh, nobody can hear your mistakes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You well, can I mean, make a mistake and no one a little bit vaguely. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody else makes this the same mistake you do at the same time yeah you but the safety yeah so this, so much safer yeah and uh and even if they don't feel self-conscious about singing in their house in front of their family or in front of their pets or whoever they might have other members of the family or other logistical reasons why they can't be loud in their house they might have a baby cousin they might themselves have a child they might have you know sick might parents sick. and exactly so um and that the other the other thing is that i this will probably change in the fall when we go to distance learning, but um, right now I certainly have much less work than I normally would in April. April is usually the craziest month. Yeah. And I was supposed to have my concert on Sunday. Tonight is supposed to be the banquet for all the music students. Yeah. Ours was on Saturday or rather was- Did you have like a little heartbreak when the, when the time came? No, um, I did get a message on the group chat from one of my students who was having that heartbreak and we were supposed yeah. to premiere a piece by a member of the music department and oh. so he posted, but my, I really love rehearsal. Yeah. So I don't have a strong emotional identification. I certainly knew it was day, but yeah. I don't have as strong an emotional identification with like it was the performance. It was my oh. moment. You know, I'm, I just want to be in the room and do the stuff together. And yeah. I guess we have to have an audience at some point. Fine. You know, I feel the same. I feel exactly the same way, but I had become habituated to missing my rehearsals so that when rehearsal time came around, the first few were just, were really, really hard for me to be like, I'm supposed to be in rehearsal right now. And it was just heartbreaking not to go do that. Um, but I had become used to it. So that Monday, Wednesday nights I got, it was fine. And then the performance came and it was on a Sunday and it was like, oh, I haven't learned how to miss this one. And so it was a, it was a fresh wound. And yeah. now like the fact that this right now, right now I should be at the banquet is also like a, I'm supposed to be like saying goodbye to the seniors and yeah. Yeah. The senior thing, I did not, I did not register at the point when we were all leaving campus and saying goodbye, did not, was very cavalier about it, did not recognize the weight of it. And now like, I'm like, oh gosh. 
my school had not yet decided that we were going to distance learning by the time I had my last rehearsal, which was Wednesday before we went on spring break. My university decided on Friday of that week that we were going to distance learning. So my last rehearsal was, see you after spring break. Yeah. Fuck. I didn't get to do any of the, like, I didn't get any closure at all. It was, yeah. it was hard. Yeah, so I got a little position. closure, but they announced it, and then um, the afternoon that we had choir rehearsal, so I just sent out a message saying, like, show up to the choir room, we'll sing some fun stuff. So they all showed up, and we sang the alma mater, and we sang Lean on Me, and then I was like, what do you want to sing? And they were like, can we sing one of the movements of the Mozart Requiem? And I was like, okay. <laughs> so we sang that, and then they're like, can we sing... Let the River Run by Carly Simon. I was like, okay. So they just kind of like were things they wanted to sing. So I had a little bit of closure that way, but I am now realizing, especially with my chamber singers, the small group, there were a lot of seniors in that. We were going to do a really fun jazz set. We were going to do something with a jazz ensemble. We'd never done that before. Anyways, so lots of stuff has changed and I don't have the volume of work to keep me busy. Their faculty are working there passes off yeah right? and I'm are you just, finding that the lack of stuff to do is a hardship yes interestingly so in any given moment if you were like you have to do work i'd be like ah. but <laughs> on the days when i have to do more work then i notice that my mood is better yeah i hadn't thought about this but you're both in a position where come the fall even as the rules change around social distancing there's really not a way to have a, a choir rehearsal no, I actually talked to my department chair about this at our at our faculty meeting yesterday. I'm sure that our our athletics and other student activity groups like drama are going to have to make policies and decisions about what's going to be acceptable and what measures are we going to take for social distancing on the campus. If we go back at all, what what is it responsible to have people in a room with their mouths open? showering each other with droplets yeah it's very much the same as theater and sports yeah yeah more sort so of the point is being in the same space and moving your bodies together yeah <laughs> yeah however often as smaller casts you know as i mean i don't know maybe you guys do big broadway you know productions with a dance troupe of 40 but at our school theater usually has you know about a dozen maybe more maybe less but choir is 50 kids it doesn't lose a lot when it comes to an, a disease as infectious as this one. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. That's yeah, the public health coming sports. out in me. <laughs> I think sports will. I mean, I assume we're going to kind of take our lead off of sports because yeah. sports make a lot of money for the school. So yeah, that'll be a whole interesting thing. It is really scary if economic decisions are going to outpace health decisions. Oh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. So we'll see. I, I, so I'm currently in a, in a state of having no idea. Just, you know, speaking of the two episodes ago when you were doing the whole thing about, I loved the episode about unfamiliar music. Anyways, that whole thing, no idea what the you were basically the target audience for that episode <laughs> yeah i well i truly appreciated it so thank you thank you for my episode <laughs> do you find that your skill and ability in listening to unfamiliar and even music that you don't really like very much but you can patiently listen to it and kind of pick it apart do you find that that's a skill that you can apply to general uncertainty and waiting to figure out what's going on around you i think for me so first of all i'll tell you the answer and then i'll tell you a very funny meta thing so number one, I think for me, most of this operates below the level of consciousness. Of course. So if I'm sitting in a situation, yeah, I, I would say I don't think, I think because of what I see coming out in my mood and my energy levels that probably not, probably the specific training to listen to Baird, not as helpful for dealing with a pandemic but i but wanted to put a link in the description of something by baird to well, illustrate why that's oh, no, Votsek. Well, Votsek, so yeah. baird. oh god that opera you mentioned emily although yes, we won't go on a tangent but i will tell you this is highly ironic i've had a tab open in my browser to an article about why it is difficult to listen to new music mm -hmm. and that tab has been open for over a month and I have not even been able to read the article 
namely review new data wow this topic of why it is hard to review new data that is super meta isn't that the most meta yeah Yeah, what have you been doing instead because i've been watching episodes of 30 rock so um minesweeper (laughs) big fan developed a wrist problem (laughs) games so much nothing like an injury to yeah so (laughs) now distract you from the existential dread put the phone on the arm of the couch and not hold it in my left hand. Been watching a lot of numbers, that cop show with the genius mathematician and his FBI brother. Oh yeah. I did watch all of Picard, so I did consume some new media, so go me. Um, no. I am reading. Yeah. yeah. Hey now. <laughs> in a familiar world, is what I'm saying. Yes, exactly, it's true. We like uh, things to be new, just not that new. Right. Yeah. Like Mandalorian. Same world. Yeah, I need to check out Mandalorian. I've heard good things. And I've been reading, but slowly. Like, I would have expected that with all this free time, I would rip through fiction. Not not ripping through it. Going going pretty slow. Yeah, attention is hard when a lot of your brain power is being used up by simply coping with daily life. Yeah. That existential yeah. dread, it really uses a lot, a lot of horsepower. Yeah. Yeah, and my other main challenge is that I'm somebody, ironic for an introvert, who is motivated by deadlines for other people or owing other people things. I'm very, I need an external motivation where a person needs a thing or will be disappointed with me. I don't even think it's that. They're like, there has to be a deadline. Yeah, you need a cognitive Uh, exoskeleton. Yeah, and so I don't have that now. So that's, it's very, very, very difficult to achieve anything on the to-do list. Do you have any conscious strategies that you use? Well, to do, so this is two things. Do you, first of all, do you have any things that you are doing consciously to deal with the uncertainty and the sort of existential dread? And my follow-up question is, is there any strategy that you're applying to give yourself that structure and deadlines in order to, or are you still just like swimming in a soup of (laughs) procrastination? Um, well, I do feel that I'm sort of still in the soup, but I would say that for the first question, I'm trying to make sure I take a walk every day. Mm-hmm. There, there are little things that give structure to the day that I think are very important. Some of them, getting up in the morning, I would like to do that and be moving by a certain time, and that's not really happening. But every day... I, when I met with all my students, they were like, they all said they're sleeping till 11. We can't have a meeting till noon because I sleep till 11 every day, they said. They're college students, their phase delayed. Yeah, I know. I'm just saying. Like, yeah. Insert yeah. the sleep episodes here. Yeah. yeah. Do you yeah. know what your natural body rhythms are when your body wants to sleep and wake? I think that my circadian length is more than 24 hours. That's true so for some people. I think that there is no rhythm. Yep, it's a, it's either, a trait. individual trait. It's called rhythmicity. Some people's yeah. bodies are very stable and reliable. Some people's are all over the place. Yeah, no, if I were, if I were like, I read an article about two guys who did an uh, experiment in a cave where they were down there right. for a month. Mm-hmm. I don't, maybe I heard about that on the podcast. I can't remember. Um, no. But uh, I think that I would be longer than 24 hours. So that my natural rhythmic cycle is at odds with the sun cycle. So, so either I will sleep as long as I want, but then I get up later and I feel out of sync with the sun or I always get up at the same time every day and feel a teensy bit tired. So that okay. has been a challenge. Mm. Um, but every day I, between noon and one, uh, my brother video calls me and I read a nap time story to my nephews. That's one thing that always happens. And I try to always go for a walk and I'm kind of settled into a sort of like a four meal, you know, mm-hmm. and so there are, Little things that I'm, and I think that the routine is the best thing for combating the existential dread. Mm-hmm. For trying to get through my to-do list, I'm not, I don't have to finish a book or anything, so I haven't been putting too much pressure on myself. But my tactic in the past was that I, for getting through my dissertation writing phase, for example, is I had a friend in the dissertation program, Alex, and we would have to check in with each other we would i would text him and i'd be like this is my goal and if i don't text you by this time either that i'm awake or 
sometimes that I have completed X goal, then for every minute I was late, I had to donate $1 to an agreed upon yes. uh, virtuous but irritating charity. <laughs> so, and he did the same. And so that's how we got through the third year of our- What on constitutes a virtuous but irritating charity? Uh, so those are, I mean, these are all like evidence-based strategies for building in like a behavioral economics, cognitive structure, social accountability. Those are, you, do you know that those are evidence-based things? Do you like get the ideas from books about the science of behavioral economics? No, I didn't get the, I do, I do know now that some of those are evidence-based because I listened to this podcast uh, and because I read Burnout. But at the time that I adopted that strategy, that was uh gosh that was three to four years ago so no i didn't know at the time i just i just knew that it would probably work for me and so one time during this quarantine i did reach out to alex and i was like look i gotta be up i gotta be in front of my computer by 10 a.m can we do the old thing and yeah. I, i'm sure he would be happy to you know he's always happy to serve that role for me that's so. literally like donating to a charity it's actually in the research it's donating to a charity you actively object to in order to be accountable for behaviors. I think it's in the book, Predictably Irrational, Dan Ariely. I had read it in an article somewhere. Yeah. So yeah, that, that one I, I did not. I think that's a good choice about. to make it uh, one that you, it's not, it's not the NRA. Right, exactly. Westboro Baptist Church. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's just uh, one where you're like, oh, come on. Yeah, exactly. We do get a lot of feedback about the book that people, even if they don't take away everything new, one of the most helpful things they find about the book is explanations about why the things they're already doing work. Because when you have the formula instead of just the solution, when you have the formula to why the solution works, you can make new solutions that also work just as well. Yeah. And it's easier to stick to the solution. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Aside from social accountability, I would say that is my only tool. Have to come up with some others. So you are reaching out actively to connect to other people, but you also have two cats. Do you find that? Pets Company of Animals is fulfilling. Lifesavers. Yeah. Lifesavers. So important. This was true even before, again, before the pandemic, because as an introvert who is uh, a very single person, we could go into that, but um, very (laughs) interested in remaining single. So the contact with the cats, especially the the cat that I got there. Well, no, that's not even true. They're both super cuddly. They're really, they're both really cuddly. And so that's very important. I don't know what I would be doing right now if I did not have two cats. Yeah. See, I knew that was going to be the answer. That's why I prompted her to say it. Oh, okay. Just FYI. Other things that have changed. What's the hardest thing? Um, Probably. What is a real hard thing? It doesn't have to be like the hardest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have always had energy problems. I'm hypothyroid, that might play into it a little bit. I am on medication, but I just feel like I never have as much energy as I want to do all the things I want. And so that has been greatly, greatly exacerbated in this time. Um, It also sounds like you're a person with a very active inner world. And so Mm -hmm. you don't actually require stimulation from the outside world in order to feel like you are living a full life. I think that's true. Yeah. To a large extent. I want to normalize the, like, I think there are people who hear the degree of structure that you seek and will have judgy feelings about it because I worked on a campus full of like driven, motivated, high achieving people. And Mm -hmm. uh, they often like didn't understand why people need like external structure in order to organize their lives. But I think your experience is actually much more typical, much more like regular human brains. The people who do not require external structure are the weirdos. Yeah, I would certainly, I mean, not to centralize my own experience, but I would certainly think that's true. And from that's the people why that I wanted talking, to talk to you is because I feel like yeah. your experience is more central than mine. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, but I mean, that's that's very I true. I spent five hours today working on a Mandalorian puzzle. <laughs> My husband drove to Amelia's house, picked up our dog and drove back, and I had not stopped working yeah. on the Mandalorian puzzle. Yeah, that's me and Minesweeper. I think 
when I mentioned Minesweeper before. <laughs> I just want to say that you probably assumed I meant a smaller period of time playing Minesweeper <laughs> than I actually did. Yeah, if you're getting a wrist injury, it's like... <laughs> yeah. Also, shout out to Dominion Online. Spend many hours there. These are all so, good ideas. Yeah, yeah. Play, play computer games until you fall over. No, I require a lot of external structure and motivation to keep going. And then ironically, um, when I have it, I resent it because I just want to, again, lie on the couch. Again, there's this eternal conflict between my desire to just relax and not have anything to do. And I want to add in here that Allegra yeah. finished her doctorate less than a year ago and is still in recovery from academic you know the deep, it takes three dark. years and, it takes and, three years what you're describing about the just wanting to lay down and resenting the requirement to work just to do basic human things i felt like that for a solid two years after i finished my doctorate oh yeah it went away though so it might okay. be temporary i had I actual so. double pneumonia because if you're gonna be exhausted and not be able to like stand up and walk around you might as well have a structural problem just <laughs> to justify it I did interestingly last spring while I was while I was finishing up the doctorate the last day of our choir tour I got a really bad case of the flu and mm. that stayed around in some form for over a month and that was exactly as I was trying to get through the last hurdles mm -hmm. and I was quite aware that that was not a uh, you know and that was mostly because of knowing about Amelia's experience that I was like well this is not a coincidence Guess we just have to survive it. Like, I'm so glad. I'm yeah. so glad. I'm yeah. glad that my experience helped make yours less miserable, if yeah. only just by a tiny amount. You didn't yeah. actually end up in the hospital. No, I didn't. But I also was not confused about what was happening. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is this is that. Yes. Uh, so what's the best thing about qu quarantine? Hmm. I, it's hard to think of one best thing. I think I keep waiting for my brain to adjust and then I can, you know, enjoy all this free time. Uh, so like, yeah. I'm like, maybe that will happen and it'll be great. It's really hard though when you, I mean, the larger national situation just makes it frankly impossible to kind of truly enjoy what's going on. Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> cooking like having a little time to cook see having emily allegra likes to cook yeah yeah I'm food I'm stuff and also like i have a certain i don't know i haven't really delved into this very much yet i need to find a therapist but i have a certain amount of anxiety if i don't have access to food so on a really busy day if i don't pack food that can be a source of real stress i need to know that i have fuel like available. And so being in a place where I, I mean, it's really easy to control, you know, your food, because if you're hungry, you can eat. It's not a problem. You have the time to eat and it, all the food is right there. So I'm, I was just thinking about this the past few days, but I'm hopeful that kind of that I, I'll be able to sort of like enjoy and calm down around, you know, feeding my body you'll have some practice feeling comfortable about the food yeah. you have access to. Yeah, just to practice, practicing security, security of feelings around food. I just want to emphasize that I had a very lucky, lucky and lovely childhood and I was never a person who went hungry, like that this is, you know. Yeah, no, that's just one of the ways that anxiety manifests itself. It just chose food as the thing to focus on because it's yeah. gotta pick something. It could have been washing your hands. It could have been pulling hair. It could have been uh, intrusive thoughts. It's also sleep for me. So knowing yeah. that I have access to food and sleep, like things that you like knowledge. Oh, man, quarantine is a little bit heavenly for you. <laughs> well, it should be, but then it's not. So then A, I feel ungrateful that I'm not enjoying it more, but the minute oh, yeah. you start to feel enjoy like you're enjoying it you feel horrendously guilty because everybody is dying for you to have one moment of relaxation pretty complicated there's a lot of yo-yoing yes yes there is <laughs> the yo-yoing i think is 
the fundamental state of everyone now. No one feels one thing. We all feel wildly swinging between extremes. Yeah, and no matter what you feel, it's wrong. How dare you be happy? Look how People are dying, yes. Yeah, no, no emotion can be quote-unquote correct. And isn't wanna... there a kind of freedom in that? Like, if you're doing it wrong no matter what, then you can do whatever, because it's going to be wrong. People are going to judge you, so. That's what Raul Esparza said on the Sondheim 90th birthday thing. Is it? If you're always working to do it right, then you can never be wrong, so you might as well try everything. Right. Yeah, oh, right. something yeah. like that. If, if nothing can ever be completely right, then also nothing can ever be completely wrong. Yeah, so just keep trying. I was yeah. told that once I, and for some reason I had in my mind the age 42, because a conductor of mine told me that when she hit 42, she suddenly did not give two fucks about anything. And so I am like waiting for that to descend. I'm like, when do I get my door prize? I'm 42, I want to now give not two fucks about anything, unfortunately. I'm working on it. I give less fucks, but I still do. Emily, do you have any fucks to give? That's a complicated question. (laughs) Because I do work that I feel like is genuinely meaningful and important and changes people's lives. And I give a fuck about doing that extremely well. I give a fuck about making sure it's evidence-based. I give a fuck about like making my communication around it as genuinely clear and kind and supportive as it can possibly be. And I also know that when I do have to travel and present in person, how I'm perceived and heard is changed by the way people see my actual physical body and face. And so I have to give a fuck about my clothes and my makeup and I don't want to give a, I don't truly give a fuck about any of that. I give a fuck about doing my job well um, and being effective in my job. And that requires me to care or pay attention to things that I would not otherwise care about. So with quarantine, I don't have to like (laughs) put on makeup. I don't have to worry about clothes. I think that it counts as not giving a fuck if you choose to give a fuck. Like I care about a thing, I choose and I work. And then it's it it only counts as I still I still give a fuck if someone else has chosen that you have to care about that. Well, so who is it then that's deciding that whatever I feel is wrong? Kind of, it's me. Yes. Yo-yoing. Exactly. That's how you stop giving a fuck, is when you realize the only one who's deciding that I have to care is me. So I'm just going to decide I don't care about people dying? Seems complicated. So let's talk about, so again, my public health background kicks in. And the deal is thinking about, for example, risk at a population level versus an individual level. Those are really different levels of analysis. When you go out into the world and buy your groceries, there is a level of risk that you, an individual human, have given the specific route you take to your store, given the specific characteristics of the store where you are, the number of people there, the density of infection already in that place. Like your risk is one thing. And then there's the population level risk, which is the average risk of like the thousands of people who live in a community. Those are two totally different things that you have to think about in a totally different way. So the way you think about your daily life and happiness just does not have to be related. It's a totally different level of analysis from the larger world. So there's you like, you know, waking up in the morning and structuring your day the way you need to structure it. And you search for like moments, spots of joy and pleasure and connection and humanity and well-being and Minesweeper and the cats. (laughs) And All of that can coexist within the larger scale population level context of thousands of people dying and a federal response that is utterly chaotic, right? Like you can live your life in a way that celebrates your life in a way that does not also disrespect the reality of the cultural level trauma we're all undergoing. Both those things can be true at the same time because they're different levels of analysis. So remember the the flock metaphor? The way a flock of birds work is uh, there's not a leader of a flock of birds or a flock of sheep or anything else. Um, It's just every bird has a set of rules in their brain that they should stay about yay far from their neighbors, fly generally south and avoid predators. 
And when everybody follows those rules, flocking emerges. So everybody's flying south and then a predator comes by. And so some bir a bird is like, oh, there's a predator and starts going in this other direction. And because the birds that are adjacent to that bird have the rules stay this distance from my neighbor, they follow. And so the flock, that's how you get these like big sort of swirling flocks of birds. Does that make sense? Yeah. No one's in charge of that. And the deal is if you shot some of the birds, the flock would still exist, right? Uh-huh. Okay, now we're getting dark. Keep going. Yeah, right. But the thing is, like, it, what's happening at the individual level cannot be predicted. Like, if you just study a bird, you would never be able to, there's nothing about a bird that would predict a flock. And there's yeah. nothing about a flock that requires the things that are true about a bird which is one of the reasons we see flocking type behavior in many different species. We see it in schools of fish, we see it in flocks of sheep, we see it in penguins, which are also birds. But like any, and in humans, any social species, we have these same kinds of dynamics because the behavior of social grouping, bees and ants, there's nothing inherent in an individual organism that predicts the structure of the overall group. Does but on an sense? emotional level, yeah, but do you, so maybe this is why you had me on, because do you too feel that you have successfully disentangled your emotional life in a daily, here I am in my house way, from your reaction to the, and feelings about the larger experience? I have not disentangled myself, but I have gotten comfortable with sitting down and untangling the knots every day. Mm. And that's just part of my day every day. What time of day? How do you do it? What, what activity does that for you? It's, it's gradual and it's all day. It's, it's a cycle. Like I re-entangle and I watch the news and I re-entangle. And then I remember that I'm just me and I'm doing my part and I'm part of the world. And if I am doing the best that I can with the resources I have available, that that is good enough. And then I see another fucking news report and I re-entangle again and I, 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 I donate to a food bank in Springfield or I send an email to somebody who I know could use a friendly email and I do a thing that I think will help and that disentangles me again. Does that make sense? It's not about being disconnected or disentangled. It's about moving through entanglement and, and separation. What I was saying is, Amelia, you seemed to have evidence-based strategies for doing an activity to combat your feelings of helplessness and or entanglement of your yeah. the larger situation. Yeah, it's about moving through cycles of entanglement and disentanglement, and you got to find the things that work for you. But if I do a thing that lets me know that the world is not falling to shit while I, while I roll around in my money pit, I am doing a thing. I have made a donation to a food bank. I have written an email to someone who I know could use with a little bit of cheering up. If I do something, I know I've done a thing and made a contribution and me and the resources I have available are enough. I definitely feel like what I can do is enough. I don't have to stop everyone from dying. I want that to happen but I don't have to make it happen in order to be worth existing on the planet. So earlier you said, well, as long as you know you're doing your best, and I have to say that I've always had a profound problem with the phrase, are you doing your best? Because at no point- in I don't my think Amelia said doing your best. I'm or doing as much as I can, the best I can yeah. with the resources oh, available. As as can. To me, those are the same. As much as you can are doing your best. Because you always do more. I've had a problem with this since I was a child. Anytime somebody said, well, did you try your best? I felt like, no, surely I could have tried harder. Like, so let me ask you this, Allegra. When you were getting your doctorate, did you ever sing to yourself, C is for credit, it's good enough for me. C is for credit, it's good uh, enough no, for me. No, I said D is for done. <laughs> Okay, so you do have the sense of like, you don't have to ace, you can just pass and that's enough? Yes. Life lesson, you don't have to ace it, you can pass. 
And that's enough. Yeah. Well, I just want to toss out for everybody else out there who has problems with the idea of like, well, did you try your hardest or are you doing your best or all that kind of stuff? I, I can't handle that because I'm always like, I did not. I'm sure there were extra neurons that could have fired and extra muscle fi fibers that could have twitched. And I, in fact, did not do my best. This is a thing that I have spent a lot of time talking to students about and talking to professionals about. One of the things I say over and over is just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I have students actively object to be like, nope, that's wrong. If I can, then I should. I have a moral obligation to do everything I can. But the way you measure can really makes a difference there. Because if your definition of what I can do is what you can do today, regardless of how you feel the next day, then you're not really doing it. It's, you need to do as much as you can and still be able to continue doing that every day for the rest of your life. Yeah. So that's how much you can do. Um, so for me, there are some things where you work as you hard as you can and there's an, a, a deadline, like an election or a semester where there's like an end date and you just push really hard, you get to the end and there's a built-in collapse time afterward. And I know a lot of people who based on like projects or semesters will get to the point where they are just barely crawling past the finish line and then they do self-care. That's how I lived for the entire time that I was in school. And I had to restructure my understanding of how hard to work when my life was no longer built around deadlines or uh, semesters and was instead around much larger scale things that took like years at a time. How do I continue pushing for years at a time, still doing my best in air quotes? <laughs> and so that's the... That's where I got in chapter seven, the rest chapter, 42%. 42% of my goddamn day on average needs to be stuff that brings me energy back so that I feel well enough to continue doing the work tomorrow and the day after that and the day after that and the day after that. In my travel schedule and in how much I charge people for traveling, I bear in mind that it's going to take me at least one full day to recover from the travel. So if I have to fly somewhere, it's the flying day, the work day, the flying back day, the recovery day. One day of work is four days of time commitment for me. And I charge accordingly. Because I live in an organic body with limits. I want to use uh, Allegra, an example that I know that you're familiar with. You probably pushed as hard as you could for as long as you could while you were in your doctoral program. Pretty much, yeah. Especially on campus. Yes. And you might like get to the end of the semester and rest as much as you can and recover as much as you can. Was that like a cycle you went through? A little bit, although there were always ongoing things at the end of the semester, especially yes. when you're writing, it didn't really ever feel like there was a recovery period. Right. So you are in that recovery period now. It's a year later and you're still recovering. Yeah. You pushed as hard as you could. And now it's going to take you three years probably so you get back to your actual baseline normality. So if you think that for the whole of the pandemic, you have to be taking on responsibility for helping save lives or for at least worrying an appropriate amount, right? <laughs> owe that to the universe. If you think you're going to sustain that for the, I don't know, 18 months that this is going to last, what's that going to do? How long are you going to have to spend recovering from that? really hard to let go of the idea that my contribution is worrying. What my therapist would say was, does your worrying help anyone? Mm, indeed. It only hurts you. I seem to feel like I read an article recently about how presenting people with facts did not necessarily manage to change their beliefs. On the contrary. Even if I accept and believe your, your facts, the more uh, good luck facts, the more likely you are to uh, entrench someone in their unfactual belief. Yeah. yeah. What if they desire to believe your facts? Oh, if they desire to believe your facts, they will be persuaded. Uh, people are happy to believe anything they like the sound of. Then I guess there's hope for me. If you like the sound of, hey, Allegra, you don't have to worry. Worrying doesn't really help people and it only harms you. If that feels true to you, it can be true. It's going to be a, a long habit to break. How about this for like, just like a basic logical piece? Your anxiety, your worry, your fear, 
only increases the level of anxiety, worry, and fear in the world. Your joy, your peace, your happiness only increases the amount of joy, peace, and happiness in the world. Therefore, it only makes sense that you seek joy, peace, and happiness instead of anxiety and fear if you want to make the world a better place. That works for me, but I can easily see somebody being like, oh no, now it's my job to not increase the worth. Ah! <laughs> However, I do myself find that to be a helpful concept. <laughs> okay. Like if you want the world to be like a happy, joyful place, you're part of the world and you're the part you can control, so. Fair enough. Yeah. We like it when you're joyful and peaceful and happy. It makes us happy. So here's the human giver syndrome way to put it. Allegra, when you're unhappy, when you're anxious and overwhelmed and stressed out over things over which you have no control, that makes me feel really bad. And what I need from you is for you to let go, move through it, and access joy. Would you do that for me? Aren't we supposed to be getting human givers away from those thought patterns? You know what? I will do whatever it takes. <laughs> and the thing is, giving is not the problem. It's giving in the context of being taken advantage of, of having someone take you for granted and just continue to take everything that you give because they feel entitled to it. I'm using the desire for us all to help each other as a way to like, construct a narrative where you feel like the only way that I can make sure Emily is okay is to do everything I can to make sure I'm okay. Being a giver is not the bad thing. Giving in the context of people who take advantage of you is the bad thing. And I think the sense of obligation to worry that you have a responsibility to feel bad if anybody else feels bad, I think that's a human giver thing too. And I can yeah. see, like, in the same way that you're like, oh, no, now it's my job to whatever. I can see people being, like, beating yeah. themselves up. Like, God damn it, I need to, like, get my shit together and not be so unhappy because I'm just making all the people around me unhappy with my unhappiness. And that's just increasing the amount of unhappiness available in the world. So instead, what you do is you move through it. You, you go through the tunnel. Yeah. Instead of, like, worrying about how worried you are, you notice that you're worried and you allow yourself to move through the tunnel. And like, there's light at the end every single time, which is Great. what Amelia does is what Amelia's talking about is she notices that she's like getting into the tunnel of obsessive worry and she goes, oh, right. And lets that go and like bubbles back up to the surface of real life and real connection and real people. And Zoom dinners. Right. Which is where this all started. Like, you know exactly what to do. And on one level, like, I think like the most like profound thing you have illustrated is this combination of on the one hand doing all the stuff you know you need to do in order to live a life that feels right for you while at the same time being like deeply conflicted about the fact that you are doing that on a lot of different levels like you have feelings about the what like you're doing everything like that suits you and you have a lot of complicated feelings about those things you are doing and uh, that's okay. You're still doing it right. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, that makes sense. But and don't it, abandon my profession and run off to med school. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, we need you conducting choirs. When choirs are safe again, oh. we need you up on podiums. Choirs are safe again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And they will You're, be. Yeah, we need you to do that work to be available to singers because you're not one of those conductors who makes singers' lives less good. You're one of those conductors who remembers that your singers are human beings. We, we need you engaged in that. Please do not abandon choral conducting because that work is very important. So just to normalize, it has also occurred to me like maybe I should go to medical school. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I think like I pass out when I have blood drawn <laughs> oh, me too. Good point. No, I also have that thing. Yeah. Maybe a slight disqualification. <laughs> yeah. And like, like I probably could fight through that if I had to, but like, let's face it, I have found my calling. Yeah. So I'm, I'm good. I'm all set. You also, though, are currently involved in the health 
business, I mean, not business. Well, yes, business. I mean, that's a whole rabbit hole. Ish. Anyways, your calling is health, I would say. Yes. Okay, I just want to remind you, Allegra, that Emily and I wrote this book together about like stress management and how hard it is to live in the world because we recognize that my work as a choral conductor overlapped significantly. Really is the same thing. With her work as a public health educator. You were doing the same work. That's why I'm saying, like, you remember the humanity of the individuals who sing with you. That is, that's public health work. We're prompting you to re-engage with your something larger. I know, I know. Which is difficult to do because you cannot engage through which you access it. Yeah, Amelia and I have had some conversations about the something larger, because even within choral conducting, people have specific something larger focuses. And mine is... um, basically anti-racism, which took me a much longer time to kind of focus in on than Amelia did on hers. But it's nice to be reminded that that is also important. Do you want to talk about your dissertation for two seconds? Or would that be painful? (gasps) Only two seconds, of course. (laughs) So my dissertation uh, was on the choral cantatas of Margaret Bonds and Langston Hughes. Margaret Bonds was an African-American composer born in Chicago in 1913. And she is a complete delight and she and Langston Hughes have 40 years of correspondence together which is also a complete delight and they wrote two choral cantatas and you can go buy the Ballad of the Brown King recorded by the Desaf Choirs and you can go listen to Simon Bore the Cross sung by Georgetown University on YouTube and she has a lot of wonderful art songs and piano music as well but Jumping off from my dissertation, I'm trying to learn more about African-American music, what some people would call non-idiotic choral music, um, meaning works by Black composers that since they are not involving, for example, spirituals, or are not particularly investigating African-American types of music, but are- Idioms. Yeah. Non-idiomatic music by- Yeah, so Black composers tend to be rewarded for doing things that are coded as black yeah and they tend to be ignored when they leave those areas so i'm trying to learn more about all the different types of music that choral composers and here i'm really specifically talking about what we would consider western european slash american classical slash art music um because it was so well, it's tough because I mean, there's there's all kinds of uh, yeah music that I'm not an expert in. I'm not an expert in gospel. I'm not an expert in jazz choirs. I'm not you know, and all of these things rely heavily on African American genre. I just wanted Emily to get a sense of like your interest in um, social justice and racial issues within choral music is literally your area of expertise. That's the work that you're doing and focusing on with your doctoral work, but also in your programming with your college choirs, et cetera, et cetera. I just wanted to give Emily a sense of what that actually is. Yeah. And honestly, the most, for me, the most important thing is that your whole energy changed completely when you started talking about it. (laughs) It brought you to life Mm -hmm. in a way that just talking about you (laughs) couldn't do. (laughs) Yeah, well, I'm sure once I get a therapist, we could talk about that as well. But it's true for a lot of people because you are not your something larger. Right. Exactly. Like thinking about your own self-care is not the thing that like makes you feel like you're contributing something to the world. It's just the thing that enables you to be able to contribute. Exactly. And it feels that's so many steps removed that doing all the self-care stuff is like, here we go through the to-do list. Yeah. Yeah really ultimately is an aid of you surviving long enough to be able to do the thing that you are here to do. Right. Yes. Knock on wood. Yay. Well, I feel like I have learned things today and it was valuable to talk to somebody who is not quite so far out of the middle of the bell curve. Yeah. Let's conclude with Allegra tell us one great thing that happened in the last day or two. I made the Korean noodle dish chapche, and it was very good. Yeah. Ooh. Can you uh, send a link to Amelia? We can include a link in the show notes to the I'd recipe. Be happy to. So that we Great. can share this delightful thing with everyone who listens to this. 
I would love to. That's spectacular. Well, it's a great thing that happened to you, Emily. At the grocery store. Uh, a great thing that happened to me is I was able to sit in a chair for this entire time. It's very impressive. And I'm not even in pain right now. Hey, hey. We'll see what happens when I stand up, but yeah, it's great. Mm. And you? Well, we adopted a dog about a week ago who was severely traumatized and just not in good shape. So we've been working to rehabilitate her. And today she picked up a toy and played with it for the first time. No. It was so sweet. Yeah. So this is the hand over the heart noise. Yeah. She's making progress. That is the ideal thing to conclude with. Congratulations to Sadie on learning how to be a dog. Yeah. My little. Yay. Yay. We're people who read an article about Zoom dinners in the Atlantic. The Feminist Survival Project 2020 is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.